Take your Bibles and turn this evening with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 7. As we look at the passage this evening, I was reminded by several commentators that of all of the sermons in the book of Acts that we are going to be going through, this one is the longest by several verses. However, I think I can pretty much sum what Stephen says up in one sentence. But we'll wait till the end so we don't check out early. Looking this evening, the last two Sunday evenings, we've been looking through Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, specifically at Peter, uh, Peter's message sermon at Pentecost, his defense of the giving of the Spirit by Jesus Christ, pointing through the Old Testament prophecies that what was going on at Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit on believers, was exactly what the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied. And when we get to chapter 3, we looked at last week, again, Peter and John have just healed a man who was crippled from birth. And again, this sermon he gives is not so much a sermon as much as a defense of how did this man get healed? And he was healed through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter again goes through the scriptures that he would have had the Old Testament to reveal how this is exactly what was prophesied. And when we get to Acts chapter 6, all is not right within the church. As the church is growing and it's growing exponentially. At Pentecost, you have 3,000 souls that are saved. And from Pentecost on, after the healing of the lame man, you have 5,000 who are added to the church, and you continue to have more and more people. And as you have more and more people added to the church, eventually, because you know people are who people are, even though we may be saved, we still have a sin nature that we struggle with. There are difficulties that come up the first difficulty that we see in the church is when it comes to the care of those who are widows. You have two groups of widows that the church is trying to take care of. Those who were Jewish, who were born in Jerusalem, lived in Israel, they would have been considered full-time Jews. And another group of widows who were also Jewish, but they didn't live in Israel. They lived in other areas in the Roman Empire and had come back for the feasts of Passover and Pentecost. And they are the Hellenist Jewish widows. And there was a, discre or a discrepancy that came forward and they thought that those who weren't Israel Jews were intentionally being mistreated. The apostles come together and say, okay, it's, we have to spend our time in prayer. We have to spend our time in the teaching and preaching of God's word. So they tell the church to set aside seven individuals to take care of this issue. And of those seven, the one that we're going to, one we will look at tonight in Acts chapter seven is Stephen. 
one of these original seven deacons who was chosen to assist the church with the day-to-day challenges. One thing that we notice about him is the fact that he is a Hellenistic Jew. In other words, he didn't live in Jerusalem. And some of the accusations that are going to be brought against him are simply because even though he's Jewish, he's not as Jewish as they would have liked him to be because of that. We know because of the stipulations the apostles gave to who was to be chosen that he was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. He knew the Old Testament scriptures well and was skillful in using them. And one of the things that you see as you look through this, as Stephen is giving the Old Testament scriptures, it may seem like there are some discrepancies between what he is saying and what our Old Testament says. The reason for that is Stephen, being a Hellenist Jew, would have used the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, which there was some variation. But the fact that we see it used and quoted in here as well as other portions of the New Testament can let us know that God preserves his word. One of the things that we notice about Stephen is he was not an apostle. And that's going to come into play. He was not a pastor. He was not one of the original followers of Christ. Instead, more than likely, Stephen came to know Christ at Pentecost. Stephen is simply a believer who, like all believers, has had the Holy Spirit given to him, as we saw Peter argue in Acts chapter 2. And Stephen, in Act, by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, we just see him for a little bit in chapter 6, and immediately he's getting himself in trouble with the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 7, he is brought before the Sanhedrin with false charges of blasphemy against the temple, against the law, and against Moses. He's falsely accused. He's brought to trial. When he comes to trial, the high priest simply asks one question in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Stephen, are these things so? You know, there may be a little animosity because he is a Hellenistic Jew. He's not a real Jew, so to speak. Did you blaspheme against Moses? Did you blaspheme against the law? Did you blaspheme against the temple? And what we will see in our time this evening is Stephen doesn't directly answer the question. I think that's a little theme in these questions that we've noticed so far. Peter didn't directly answer the questions in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 3. Stephen, did you blaspheme? A simple yes or no answer would have sufficed. But instead, what we see is Stephen gives a masterful, detailed defense of the Christian faith from the scriptures. We're reminded in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And what do we see Stephen doing? He's using the scriptures to point to Christ. And as I read, read through this and prepared for this, I was struck. Would I be able to go through the Old Testament scriptures as Stephen did and point someone to Christ? Because oftentimes when we're giving the gospel, when we're witnessing to someone, where do we go? We go to the New Testament because we're living in the New Testament age. And yes, all scripture is profitable, but particularly the New Testament is more profitable than the Old Testament. But we see Stephen using the scriptures that he has. Remembering possibly the words of Christ that would have been passed down from John chapter 5. Where Christ tells the scribes, search the scriptures. He's not telling them to read Ephesians or Romans or 2 Corinthians. He's telling them, go back to the Old Testament. Why? Because you, in them you think you have eternal life. But Christ says, they are they which testify of me. The Old Testament points to Christ. Now we can get into some trouble with this. Okay, There are some who would take that to the extreme and you find Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. David took five smooth stones. J-E-S-U-S. We don't want to get carried away and find what the scripture doesn't say. But the Old Testament points forward to the coming Messiah. And Stephen begins his response, Men and brethren, fathers, hearken. Listen to what I have to say. And the way that Luke records this, just very simply, politely, I've been accused of these things. Just listen to what I have to say. It's not getting upset, not getting worked up, not getting emotional. Contrasting to what we'll see at the tail end of this. But Stephen begins with God and Abraham. In Acts chapter 7 verses 2 through 8. In verse 2 and 3 he reminds us of us of God's revelation to Abraham. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. The God of glory, we see that this title is used only here in the New Testament. God's glory is the sum of all of his attributes, a majestic description of who God is. And Stephen is answering these accusations that were brought before him by bringing to mind in the listener's ears God's call to Abraham. And one of the things that you'll notice as you read through Acts chapter 7 is Stephen repeatedly uses the phrase, our fathers, 
to refer to the ancestry that they had together, affirming that, yes, I may live somewhere not in Jerusalem, but I am still just as much of a Jew as you are. God appeared to our father, Abraham. The subject of the main verbs, the God of glory appeared and said unto Abraham, is God. Stephen's focus is on the God who called Abraham. Whereas the focus of the Jews at this time, and you even see this when Christ is dealing with them, is on their father Abraham. Not on the God who called them, called Abraham. Abraham moved from Mesopotamia to Haran to Judea, following the voice of God. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. Reminding them of Abraham's original home city of Ur, located in the land of the Chaldeans. Abraham demonstrates in his life an obedience to God's call by leaving and by following. Settling in the land of Canaan was not Abraham's choice, but it was the result of God's revelation to him. The implication here being that God's promise to Abraham of a land to live in is going to be fulfilled, not to Abraham. And we'll see this other secondary theme woven throughout. God gives a promise to Abraham, but God doesn't fulfill that promise to Abraham. The promise of a land that God gives Abraham is not fulfilled until the Israelites enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership. Abraham's descendants, who continue to live in the promised land, should understand the entire history of God's revelation in and the salvation of his people through those promises that he gives. In fact, Stephen reminds them in verse 5 that God gave Abraham none of that inheritance. He promised Abraham that land, and yet he didn't even give Abraham so much as to set his foot on. So what did Abraham believe? Did he believe the land that God gave him? No, Abraham believed the promise that God gave him, not the land. The land continued to be the, the habitation of the Canaanites. Abraham never received it. But God still fulfills that promise to Abraham through his descendants. Although when God gives Abraham this promise, how many children does he have? None. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. Okay. Well, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your kids. Okay. Wait a second, God. I don't have any kids. But what does Abraham do? He believes God's promise. And that promise of God is going to be fulfilled. Stephen is pointing out and reminding the Sanhedrin that Abraham was not at home in the land that God had promised. Implying that being a descendant of Abraham does not depend on one's geographical location. 
especially of import since Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew, again, who does not live in the promised land. God's history of salvation depends not on human realities, but rather on the promises of God. If God promises something in his word, we can believe him. Because the same covenant God with Abraham is the same covenant God that we serve and worship today. Stephen reminds them that, over, that there were 40, 400 excuse me, years of captivity in Egypt. But if we read the account in Exodus chapter 12, Moses records it's 430 years. So is Stephen wrong or is Moses wrong? Is it 430 years or 400 years? Aha, the critics will say, the Bible disagrees with itself. No, Stephen is just rounding to whole numbers. That's all he's doing. He doesn't want to get bogged down in the details because his point is not in the details. His point is God gave a promise to Abraham and Abraham never saw the realization of that promise. But does that change who God is? Does that cause Abraham or his descendants to lose faith in that God? The answer is no. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham took place through Israel's suffering in Egypt. As the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, in misery, in torment, what do they do? They cry to God for deliverance. And God, in his mercy, hears their cry, brings judgment on the Egyptians, and then redeems his people from Egypt. Having begun with Abraham's movement from Mesopotamia through Canaan and into Egypt, Stephen is going to shift his focus to Israel's history now as a nation. Not just their father Abraham, but Israel as a people. From enslavement in Egypt to the intervention of God in the Exodus. We see that God gives Abraham, in verse 8, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. This covenant that God is making with Abraham is the climax of God's revelation to him. And circumcision being the visible sign of this covenant. So Abraham goes through the process. His son Isaac goes through the visible sign, the 12 sons of Jacob as well. And Stephen is going to shift his focus now from, okay, we've gotten from Father Abraham to the patriarchs. Let's focus on one in particular. In verses 9 through 16, Stephen details the relationships now between God and Joseph. We're told in verse 9, the patriarchs, you know, those whom the 12 tribes are named after. Our fathers, the Sanhedrin would have proudly proclaimed. Stephen reminds them, oh, by the way, the patriarchs were moved with envy. And they sold Joseph into Egypt. And this is going to be a main theme throughout the rest of this text. 
Israel is going to reject the one whom God has chosen to be the deliverer. And we look through and we think through the life of Joseph. Joseph, the one who God used to save Israel through the worldwide famine. But what do his brothers do? They reject him. Well, they just didn't know that God was going to use him. Yes, they did. Joseph had at least two dreams that are recorded for us that he told them. But what did they, how did his brothers respond to those dreams? They became envious. They became jealous. Those who possessed Abraham's promise, the patriarchs, caused a supposed crisis in God's history. They have a problematic character. They are jealous. And that jealousy is something that we'll see woven throughout this, even to when you get to the Sanhedrin before whom Stephen is standing. Not only do they have a problematic character, but they commit a serious sin. They sell Joseph as a slave. These jealous patriarchs can be seen as prototypes of the contemporary Jewish leaders who plotted to eliminate Jesus. Why was Jesus crucified? Frankly, it was because the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, was jealous. The fact that more people were listening to him and following him than them. Not only do we see the jealous patriarchs as a prototype of the Jewish leadership, but also we see here that Joseph can be seen as a prototype of those who are of Jesus's followers who are opposed because of that jealousy. So Joseph's brothers are moved with envy. They sell him into slavery, but we see in his life God's blessing. Verse 9, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions. And he gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. God's blessing is seen by his presence with Joseph, delivering him from slavery and imprisonment. And his, God's blessing on him is manifested by the favor and wisdom that Joseph has in the sight of Pharaoh. Joseph is an example of the righteous and wise person who suffers, but is then vindicated because God was with him. As one commentator states of Joseph, the one who saves is the one who has been rejected. He saves those who rejected him precisely through their having rejected him. Joseph is able to save his brothers even though they rejected him. And the only reason he's able to save his brothers is because they rejected him and sold him into slavery. And if we think of the parallel that Stephen is making with Christ, Christ came to save those who reject him. And he can reject him only because they rejected him and put him on the cross. As Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil. You thought you were getting rid of me. God meant it for good. Aren't you glad you were wrong? The scribes and the Pharisees that Sanhedrin thought that they were getting rid of a problem in Jesus. 
But instead, as Peter has argued in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, their crucifixion of Christ was exactly God's plan and purpose from the beginning of time. And Joseph is able to save his brothers despite their rejection. When we get to verse 17, we see God and his relationship now with Moses. Some 400 plus years after Joseph, when the time of the promise drew nigh, verse 17, which God had sworn to Abraham, over 500 years before, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born. Just as Joseph had played a decisive role in God's plan from rescue, to rescue Abraham's descendants, we're going to see now, Stephen's going to point out, Moses also plays an instrumental role in leading Abraham's descendants back to the promised land. That promise that God had given to Abraham, that Abraham never saw fulfilled, Moses is God's chosen representative to do that. And what we're going to see throughout this passage when it deals with Israel's relationship to Moses is exactly what we saw with the patriarch's relationship to Joseph. And if we can think back on the history of Israel in the wilderness, how well did they follow Moses? They rejected him time and time again. Normally, when we think of this story, the Exodus story, Egypt is portrayed in a negative light. Pharaoh was bad. The Egyptians were bad. They were cruelly mistreating the Israelites, and they were. But it's interesting to point out that Stephen is pointing out the goodnesses of God that are seen through Egypt. He points out the goodness of Pharaoh's daughter, in rescuing Moses. He points out the wisdom that Moses learned from the Egyptians that allowed him or caused him to be mighty in words and in deeds. And it's not that Egypt is not wrong in this story, but Stephen's purpose is to point out to the Sanhedrin, our fathers were wrong. Yeah, Egypt was bad, but here's what our fathers did. Remember that? They understood the salvation that God offered through Moses, or they did not understand, excuse me. Verse 25, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. Moses somehow knew that he was going to be the one God was going to use to deliver the Israelites. The scriptures don't tell us exactly how Moses knows that. But Moses knows it, and he is certain that the rest of the Israelites should know it as well. And Moses is characterized as a savior sent by God... And the people of Israel are described as having failed to understand the divine salvation. 
Again, we see Moses as a type of Christ rejected out of ignorance by those who did not understand. Not only did they not understand, but as Stephen continues through the Exodus narrative, they thrust Moses away. And Stephen recounts the story of how Moses, in delivering one fellow Israelite from the Egyptians, killed the Egyptian. The next day there was the quarrel between a couple of Israelites and he stepped in, hey guys, knock it off. And their response was, who are you? To judge us. Verse 27, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Well, first and foremost, Moses, by position of being the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter as an Egyptian, would have had the authority over the Israelites. But secondly, Moses was God's appointed judge to rescue Israel and would have had the legal authority for that. Again, we see a typology, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is being rejected by his Israelite brothers. They didn't understand salvation was coming through him. They thrust him away. They caused him to flee, verse 29, then fled Moses at this saying. And Moses was then a stranger in the land of Midian, and we know from history for 40 years. Moses, the appointed leader of Israel, is forced to leave until the time appointed by God for the redemption of his people. The parallel that we can see from this, God still has that promise to Israel. God has not rejected Israel, even though they rejected him by rejecting his son. But for a time, God is working in and through another people, a people we looked at this morning, a peculiar people, the church. But God's the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel is still going to come. Why? Because God promised it. And if God promised it, it's going to happen. Moses fled. He was a stranger in the land of Midian where he had two sons. After 40 years, Stephen recounts how Moses saw the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. And God commissions Moses at this point as his representative to his people. It's a result of God's gracious nature towards the groanings which he had heard. But God's commissioning of Moses is also to fulfill the promise that he had made to Israel through Abraham. Abraham, I made you this promise over 400 years ago that your ancestors, your descendants would be in this land. Moses is the deliverer. He is the, the redeemer who is going to get your descendants from Egypt to that land. In Moses, God is sending one to Israel who they had rejected to redeem them from their bondage. And in that same way, when we see Christ coming back at the second coming, the scriptures tell us that all of Israel will look on him and mourn as him whom they have pierced 
and all of Israel will be saved in a day. That hasn't happened yet. But even though Israel has rejected Christ, when he returns again, he has not rejected his people. He is coming back and his people will be redeemed from the curse of bondage of sin. In verse 35, we see again, this Moses, whom God has just commissioned, what did the Israelite fathers do? They rejected. Israel's response to Moses the second time is they rejected him again as ruler and redeemer. Verse 35, who made thee a ruler and a judge? And as Stephen is going through this and he's planted on Moses for a little bit, we may wonder, okay, Stephen, move on from Moses. Get to the point. But we need to remember that one of the false accusations brought against Stephen was that he had blasphemed against the name of Moses. So what is he doing? He's laying out, hey, I know exactly who Moses was. You tell me where I'm going wrong. And this is also strengthening the link between Moses and Jesus in terms of both being rejected by Israel and both being commissioned as the ruler and redeemer of Israel. Stephen reminds us that wonders and signs demonstrated that Moses was God's chosen one at that time, similar to the wonders and signs that surrounded the life of Jesus. Moses himself prophesied of a prophet who would be like him. Mo Jesus, who, like Moses, was not only a redeemer and a worker of miracles, but he was God's messenger who brought God's revelation to the sons of Israel, who, time and again, rejected him. Verse 39, Stephen tells us, our fathers were unwilling to obey Moses, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. An allusion to the events of Numbers chapter 14 where, hey, we're done with Moses. Let's go back to Egypt. You know, we're hungry. In Egypt, we had onions and leeks and garlic and all those things that make your breath smell bad. Apparently, they liked having bad breath. That's what they wanted to go back to. Let's get rid of Moses. Forget following him. Instead of relying on God's promise to Abraham, instead of trusting in God's choice of ruler, their fathers desired to return to Egypt. They rejected Moses and manufactured and worshipped the golden calf. Verses 40 and 41, make us gods to go before us. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. The rejection of Moses and his leadership on the way to the promised land is a rejection of Israel's covenant God. They weren't just rejecting Moses and they were rejecting who God himself was by making an image and saying that that image was their God. They weren't making up a new God. They made the golden calf. And remember what Aaron said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This is what he looks like, a giant cow. Let's worship him. Let's praise him. 
And it resulted, their rejection of Israel's covenant God resulted in their apostasy from worshiping the one true God who had been part of the covenant with Abraham. Stephen isn't emphasizing their immoral revelry, but instead he's emphasizing the fact that they're celebrating a God of their own manufacturing. This is our God. This is what we worship. This is what we've done. And that's going to come again into play towards the end of this before Stephen gets stoned. In verse 42, he quotes from Amos chapter 5 to again demonstrate Israel keeps rejecting God's promised one. Israel's history from the Exodus all the way to the Babylonian captivity is marked by a continuous rejection of the covenant-keeping God who promised to Abraham a land and a seed and that all the world through his seed would be blessed. And Israel time and time again rejects the one that God has sent as his messenger. In verse 44, Stephen changes. Okay, here's Moses. Did I blaspheme him? No. Another charge, I'm blaspheming against the temple. All right. Jewish history 102, the temple. Verse 44, Israel worships God in the tabernacle. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, or Joshua would be the Old Testament name, into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. Stephen says, okay, you want to talk about the temple, but we got to back up, because the temple is merely a copy. The first place to worship God is the tabernacle. That is where God revealed himself to Israel in the wilderness. And when it comes to the tabernacle, it was divinely ordained. Moses made the tabernacle or had the tabernacle made to the exact specifications that God gave him. And the tabernacle continued to be the location of worship during the times of Joshua to the time of David for approximately 300 years. And you get to David, and David, verse 46, finds favor before God. And what does David do? He desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. He wants to build a structure that is going to stay put. A building. David moves the tabernacle from Shiloh to Jerusalem, he desires to build the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, a proper habitation. David's desire was initially approved by the prophet Nathan, but following God's divine decree, we see Solomon is the one who oversaw the construction of the temple. What Stephen is kind of hinting at here is the tabernacle was divinely given by God. Solomon's temple was not. And not only was Solomon's temple not divinely orchestrated by God, we're not worshiping at Solomon's temple. 
Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. We're now on the third temple from that point, which is nowhere near as magnificent as Solomon's temple was. So this isn't even the real temple. We do need to make note of the fact, though, Stephen is not in any way dissing the temple. He's not saying the temple is bad. Because if he were to do that immediately, oh, he is blaspheming the temple, kill him. But Stephen then goes and he deals with the relationship between God, the tabernacle, and the temple in verse 48. The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As saith the prophet, and he quotes Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? The Most High is a common Old Testament title for God underscoring his transcendence, his sovereign rule over all things, the fact that you cannot take an infinite spirit God who is above his creation and confine him to a box or to a temple. He cannot be contained in a structure built by human hands. And Stephen would have known this in the Sanhedrin would have remembered this going back to Solomon's prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. God, the heavens, the celestial locations can't contain you. How are you going to come and dwell in this itty-bitty temple that we just made for you? In verse 30, where Solomon says, Hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Stephen is not accusing the Sanhedrin or Israel of wrongly worshiping God in a temple of wood and stone. Instead, what he's doing is he's emphasizing that the people of Israel misunderstood worship as taking place in a man-made structure while failing to see that God had created everything and therefore demands full obedience demonstrated by repentance and humble acceptance of his revelation. The Israelites, the Jews, were focused so much on the fact that we have the temple. This is where God is to be worshipped. We're special that they lose sight of the fact that God is to be worshipped when you're not in the temple either, because God can't be contained by the temple. It is not Stephen who has criticized the temple, but rather he argues the Jewish leaders who think that they have the little g God of the temple under their command because they have a temple. This is who God is. This is our God in our temple. And because God is in our temple, God is going to do whatever we want. And in reality, it's the Jewish leaders who are guilty of blasphemy by confining God to the temple. Before we get too hard on the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership, I think there are times where as believers we can fall into that same trap. Where as long as we're in the building, 
we're good Christians, but does it affect the way that we live outside of the building? Do we have God defined as who we want him to be and forget about the rest of what the Bible says because we might not like it or agree with it? Not worshiping God in our actions the other six days out of the week. And Stephen, as he begins to wrap things up, indicts the Jewish people for not recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah. Verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so did ye. Stephen, as he's woven throughout his review of Israel's history, the fathers of Israel have continually resisted God's anointed. They have resisted God. So if we can sum Stephen's speech up in like one sentence, stop rejecting God's provision. God gave Joseph, don't want him. God gave Moses, don't want him, don't want him, don't want him, don't want him. God gives Jesus. And what did the Jewish leadership do? Don't want him. It's a pattern. He accuses them of having uncircumcised ears and hearts, despite the fact that they had the physical sign of the God's covenant with Abraham. They are disobedient to the covenant God of Abraham. You know, yes, I have the sign, but don't expect me to live differently. Yes, I can do these things, but don't expect me to live like I should. And just as their fathers rejected God's anointed, so did they when they rejected Christ. And Stephen continues his indictment in verses 52 and 53 with a rhetorical question. It's just a little hyperbolic to emphasize the point. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one. Okay, tell me which prophet didn't, you, didn't our fathers persecute? Which prophet didn't our fathers reject? And he's not asking for an answer. We didn't reject Elisha. We liked Jonah. We didn't reject him. Because they could have probably come up with a couple of prophets. But the point being, if you look at Israel's history, what did they do with Jeremiah? Threw him into a well. Imprisoned him. What did they do with Isaiah? History tells us that he was sawn in half. And you look through the prophets, and what is Israel doing? Rejecting them. Ezekiel's message, rejected. Time and time again. To make the point that just as Israel has rejected the prophets who foretold about the Messiah, so too they rejected the Messiah when he came. And it is not Stephen who has blasphemed the law, but rather it is the Sanhedrin who have blasphemed against the law by failing to keep it. Who have blasphemed the commandments by failing to listen to what the prophet said. 
We know the end of the story. We're familiar to it at this point. They were cut to the heart. Now, that's a nice way of saying the Holy Spirit's conviction was strong. They knew they were guilty. And when you are guilty, what do we do? We lash out. It's exactly what they did. And they gnashed their, on him with their teeth. Pure outrage. They could no longer tolerate the spirit pricking their conscience. Showing from the scriptures, you're wrong. You have rejected Christ's or God's Messiah. Stephen doesn't get to the main thrust of the message. Stephen gets cut off before he can get to the good news, before he can say, but wait, you've rejected him, but he still wants you. But he is still willing to accept you if you place your faith and trust in him. He's not able to get there. And they're gnashing on him with his teeth, but Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looks steadfastly into heaven. Stephen's speech in his life ends with this beautiful vision of the one who died for him. Shifting his gaze from looking out at the Sanhedrin as he's defending himself to now looking up and seeing, as it were, the skies being opened. And seeing his Savior standing at the right hand of God, waiting for him. I don't know what that looked like, but I think the rapture is going to look pretty close. As the hymn writer states, I shall know him, I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. We see the Sanhedrin and they're just gnashing about like children. And what do we see, Stephen? He is just seeing his Savior's face. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice the Sanhedrin and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. The idea of covering their ears suggests that they think that they just heard blasphemy. No human being in their mind has the right to share the glory of God at God's right hand, and they're not wrong about that. But Jesus is no ordinary human being. Jesus is the divine Son of God, fully man and fully God. He is God's anointed. We see that they have no arguments to counter Stephen. Instead, they're acting as a child on the playground would act if he has no arguments. La, 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 I can't hear you. And they have Stephen removed, taken outside the city, and stoned. And Stephen now becomes history's first martyr for the cause of Christ. And Luke records for us that there is one who's there, who's witnessing the stoning of Stephen. A young man, when it says they laid their clothes at his feet, it indicates that he was the one responsible for it, a young man by the name of Saul. 
who has just heard this defense of Christ. And that's going to be one of those things that is continually rolling around in his mind. And as we continue through our series, looking at sermons in the book of Acts, this young man, Saul, is going to have a meeting with Christ. And we're going to look at some of his sermons as well. So what? Question time. What's the takeaway? First and foremost, if you have never placed your trust in the one that the Old Testament scriptures point to, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of Man, let today be that day of salvation. Secondly, as a believer, I hope you're challenged as I was challenged. How well do you know your scriptures? How well do you know your Old Testament? Would you be able to walk somebody through the Old Testament to point to Christ? Also remember, Stephen wasn't a pastor. Now, oftentimes we have in our minds, oh, it's the pastor's job to study the scriptures. It's the pastor's job to witness to people. No, it's not. That's a task that's given to every Christian. Stephen was simply a servant of the church. And the final takeaway that I see from this, so far with Peter, we've seen 3,000 souls get saved. We've seen 5,000 souls get saved as Peter gives clear testimony from the scriptures of who Jesus is. And now we see Stephen giving a very clear, pointed testimony of who Jesus is and how many people accept. None. And what's the end result for Stephen? He gives his life. Now, I think at times we can become disappointed as we give the gospel to others and people reject the message. But just like Stephen, just like Moses, just like Joseph, the rejection isn't us. They're rejecting Christ. So don't lose heart when you give the gospel and people reject it. It's going to happen. But still be ready, be instant in season and out. Be ready to give an answer to the hope that lies within you. Father, we thank you for this challenge from Stephen this evening. God, as we have taken this history through the nation of Israel and just how Stephen continues to point out that the rejection of Christ was nothing new, but it was a pattern in Israel's history. God, I pray that you would help encourage us when we get discouraged, when we feel that we give the gospel clearly and people reject it. May we continue to share the gospel and not to be discouraged. Father, I ask that you would help us to be in your word so that we can 
be able to give the gospel at a moment's notice, to be ready to define and give answer to the hope that is within us. And Father, we thank you that your promises to Abraham and to his descendants did not depend anything on Abraham's obedience or the children of Israel's obedience, but your promises to them rested fully on you. In the same way that your promise of salvation to us does not rest on anything that we can do, but it rests fully in you through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.